Welcome back to Pastor Potluck. It's been a few weeks. Uh, the last time we met, it was Peter and I talking Isaiah. And today, it is still Peter and I, but we're also joined by a friend of the show and fairly frequent guest, but it's been a while for him, Gordon Pike, who is our friend outside of the show as well. I am going to do most of the, of the speaking until we open up for discussion. And what I'll do is essentially I'll, I'll take us through the Bible verses and using that as a jumping out off point, I will turn to Peter and Gordon and we'll let them carry the majority of the discussion and I might jump in with some questions here or there. And this is a plan that we just came up with on the fly. As in just when I said it just now. Cool. The lectionary, uh, one of the lectionary readings today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And actually I'm preaching on it this Sunday. But it is verses 10 through 18. It says, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if you forget, hey, let's not say forget, but if you don't focus too much on this, I baptized and, and Paulos did this and Cephas and Christ, etc., etc. If you don't focus too much on, on the after stuff, then I think a, a very... If you take the, the beginning and the end of, of the pericope, often written periscope, if you, if you just take the beginning and the end, what you see is this, this call for unity. And then it gets back to tying in this message about the cross as seen by those who are perishing or those who are being saved. And the power that it has to unify us. But as I was reading, I almost wanted to snicker a little bit because verse 10, I appeal you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement. This cannot be a very big group. Mm. Because in what group have we ever been a part of where everyone agrees? Because all it takes is I mean, you get two or three plenty people. of small groups where not everyone agrees. I know. You get two or three people together, that's two or three opinions. Mm -hmm. And it may take a while for the issue to surface that everyone's like, oh, we're all in agreement. Oh, wait, you'd think that? Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's knives out. But almost never do we see people in total agreement. That said, and before we even talk about what the issue that we've decided to talk about... Um, Baptists are not immune to this. I am a in a duly aligned church, which means that we are on one hand linked to the CBF, which is where I kind of lean, which is Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, 
but also the SBC, which is what most people assume all Baptists are, but we're not, and that is the Southern Baptist Church. And in the, it came out and was in news articles and stuff in the 90s, but it really started in the late 70s. There was this, I call it fundamentalist takeover, but some people call it conservative resurgence in the Baptist Church that was, I mean, it was, we're going to get you. You disagree with me? I'm coming after you. You're a great guy, a great family man, great husband, but I'm going to ruin you. And that is not my words. Those are the words of Paul Pressler, uh, who kind of orchestrated this this Baptist split. And so we have this in our history. Hopefully, what we're going to talk about does not end up going as bad as this. But I am informed. Well, and I'll just interrupt and say, when you say we have this in our history, all of us as Christians have this in our history. Yeah. Or we'd all be Catholic. Kate, well, case in point, the scripture that we read today. Right? There's disagreement going on in this church. People are not of the same mind. The Church of Paul, the Church of Apollos, the Church of Cephas, or the Church of Christ, if you must. Conflict and and disunity is something that we encounter throughout the history of the church. But very rarely does it get press. And Mm. according to y'all, I haven't read it, but there's an article in our local newspaper about something that's going on in the Methodist church. So as we're talking about uh, disagreements getting press i'll ask you folks there's something going there's there's a there's doings a transpiring to quote cletus from the simpsons um what are they what's going on and where do you where do you where do we stand on them and etc well uh biggie hyatt the editor of the mountaineer part published an article on the front page of the uh weekend edition time out also kind of a friend of a show. She did a, yeah. she did an article on this show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We love Vicky. Uh, and she did reach out to some of uh, some of the Methodist pastors in Haywood County before she wrote that article, including me. I did not respond, uh, but she was asking about this decision. So I, I take personal responsibility for some of the uh, inaccuracies in the article because I could have... Didn't address them. Yeah. I could have said something, right? Um but uh, the article is about disaffiliation in the Methodist Church and about this quote-unquote impending deadline so that churches are So for facing. those of us who are not Methodists, please talk about what disaffiliation is and why it's a thing. Gordon, you can jump in whenever you want. Well, that's fine, but in the Methodist Church, we're, like, we're Episcopalian in the sense we're like the Catholics and that um, uh, all the properties, everything that we own is held in trust to the uh, Methodist Church. We don't own our own facilities, nor do uh, pastors are appointed. They're not hired, and so forth. To become disaffiliate would mean that that these churches have decided they do not want to be part of the United Methodist Church, and a system has been worked out where they can keep their properties and and break away from, or I like to think of become free agents. Hmm. Okay. In which case, that's they're a good to, image. They're either allowed to stay independent, or they can join this new faction of the Methodist Church called the Global Methodist Church, and they can join that. But they have to break away from the main Methodist Church before they can then be going to join with others or stay independent. So the Global Methodist Church, you said it's a new faction of the Methodist Church. Does that mean it's within the Methodist Church, or it is 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 a new entity? It started out, what was the name of that? It was was Wesley Covenant? The Wesley Covenant Group within the Methodist Church that that were... build themselves as conservative who wanted to well, the, the short okay if you have a rule 
and you got nobody following the rule. Let's say the speed limit's 40 or 60 miles an hour on I-40. Mm-hmm. And nobody's getting tickets, and nobody's going, the judge doesn't do anything. Is there a law? So the problem with the Wesleyan Covenant is we've got rules in our discipline about this that are already decided. About what? About homosexuality. And okay. ordaining gay priests and so forth in marriage. And, and basically what it says in discipline, if you're welcome to the church and everything, we just don't ordain a gay pr- pastors and we don't do gay weddings. That rule is still there, okay? What the Wesleyan Covenant Group said is either enforce the rule or change the rule. Okay. And then this can got kicked down the road forever and ever and ever. Like 20 years or Yeah, to the been... point that they said, you know what? It looks like you're not going to do anything. We're going to break off. Hmm. So they're kind of, now the goal of the main Methodist Church, is there a way that we can keep them a faction, keep them with underneath the umbrella, or do we have to accept that they're just going to break off completely? So do individual churches in Methodist life have the right to say, well, for our church, we understand that there's a rule and we're going to enforce it? Or is it all, does it all tie into the greater hierarchy of the Methodist church? And the churches can't act without the sanctioning of that, the ruling from on high. Well, okay. So, for example, an individual church... Um, could be approached by a couple who wants to get married, and they happen to be a same-sex couple. Uh, at this point in time, it depends on what uh, larger body you're a part of, what annual conference you're a part of, whether... It being whether the church can sanction that wedding or not. Uh, it depends on, on which annual conference you're a part of, whether you perform that wedding as a pastor or as a church, whether you'll be penalized for it, because some annual conferences are choosing to, you know, pursue penalties and some are not. Uh, that's the inconsistency that, that Gordon was mentioning. Well, that makes sense. Uh, and it's confusing because it's like one bishop will enforce it and another one is in a gay marriage himself. Right. And it, it like you say, it, it makes it, con- so like you said, it depends on which, what, what, the, what the powers that be are going to do about it in terms yeah. of that. But if, in terms of punishment, for example, that can't be a local church thing because if you're going to, for example, uh, punish a, a, a clergy member for performing a same-sex wedding, uh, that would be a, uh, something that would have to go before a judicial council of the United Methodist Church, which is part of that larger organizing body. The hierarchy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, if every individual pastor and every individual church are allowed to do what they think is right, um, they're either, in, in even if they think that violating the book of common, uh, book of common prayer, the 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 book of discipline, if, even if they think violating that is correct, nope. What I think the what the Wesley Covenant is afraid of or worried about is that there will come a day when the Methodist Church as a whole decides, yes, absolutely, same-sex weddings are uh, appropriate and allowed, and yes, absolutely, um, people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or to use the language from the Book of Discipline, self-avowed practicing homosexuals are ordained as clergy, and they won't have any say in the matter. Uh, So far, uh, the the people of the church or the people who for their own conscience disagree with that um yeah so so 
they're worried that there'll come a day when they'll be forced to do these weddings that they don't feel, um, you know, in good conscience they can do. So far, that hasn't been the case. Like, nobody's forcing anyone to do any kind of wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, uh, the proposals that came forward in 2019... Yes. Uh, involved, so we're four years into this thing. We are, oh, yeah. Yes. The proposals that came forward in 2019 in a special call general conference uh, were to try to figure out how to structure the church and what to do about these, this, these particularly... Um, divisive passages of the Book of Discipline. And the traditionalist uh, approach actually won that vote. So the traditionalist approach was not only do we keep the language that prohibits same-sex marriage and ordination of gay clergy, but we're also going to implement methods whereby those policies are enforced and those who violate them are punished. Which gets back to the contention that uh, Gordon voiced on behalf of these groups. I'm not saying that it's your opinion. No, no. That if you're going to have a rule, enforce it. Right, yeah. right, right. Or change it. The problem is that the, the Methodist Church is a lot like the you know, the, the Book of Discipline is almost like trying to change the Constitution. I forget. It's like got a three quarters vote. Two thirds to change the Constitution. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to do. And any any attempts that they've done that to reword it. Really never went through. So I, I think at this point, it, a, a compare and contrast kind of thing may be helpful because not everyone that listens to this podcast is a Methodist. Um, in the Baptist church, we have none. You would I, you could say we have none of these problems, but the fact is um, we, we don't have any of the structure to deal with the problems that we have. So it's, it's a blessing and a curse. Hmm. There is no... Yes. There is no one Baptist church, but because of that, whoever the loudest Baptist is, they, the world assumes that all Baptists are like that. And so, um, in other, if I were, for instance, to perform or officiate a same-sex couple's wedding, no Baptist system is going to either bless or curse it. Mm. I answer to my church. Right and God, but mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. um, and so there is some freedom in that, but there's also a complete lack of security because mm. when it comes to um, my job, just in a nuts and bolts kind of way of putting it, uh, I am beholden to my church. Like if this church has a problem with me and they get rid of me, there's no district that says, "Okay, we'll assign you here." Right. It's it's yeah. just you're on your own. And as far as churches becoming free agents, as as Gordon uh, described it, that's kind of the direction that these churches would go in, where they're hiring their pastor. Yes. The the term used in Baptist life, which I imagine that these churches that became free agents, quote unquote, would borrow, is the autonomy of the local church. Hmm. It means that it there there's no there's no one telling us what to believe, hmm. and and we even go further than that. This is why I'm a Baptist, these two concepts, to the priesthood of the, of the believer, which means not only does no one tell the church what to believe, no one tells the individual what to believe. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is a lot of freedom in Baptist world. That, in, in theory, doesn't exist in Methodism, but I believe it does exist in practice. 
I, I can't look at you two, who are both Methodists, and assume that you guys agree on everything, and I'm not trying to pick a fight here, because I think you agree on more than you disagree about, or even believe everything exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And if we were to sit Aaron Yao here, I would say the same thing about her. Yeah. Um, because I mean, that's just a random Methodist that I chose. But, um, uh, and so I think that there's, we have more in common, but you guys have this this rigid system on paper. Hmm. And it seems like that is where the disagreements are found more than, you know, disagreements in personalities. I'm sure there's some of that. But from what I'm hearing, it's really about the rules. Yeah. And uh, to that I would say, you know, no matter what church you worship in, there is there are rules. Now, the Methodist Church has historically decided that it's better for us to codify these, meaning put them into writing. Write them down, yeah. Because if they're written down, then there's an opportunity for debate, discussion, modification, uh, removal, addition by a body that is nominated or elected to, to help uh, do that kind of re- revising process. And even the Book of Discipline states clearly that we don't expect this to be a complete document. But as Gordon said, uh, it, it's much harder to remove things than it is to add things, and it's hard to change things that are already there. Uh, so we have, like, over time, a, a bigger and bigger book with more and more places where we can disagree. Um, yeah. It's, like, just, it's just like, I mean, we can even go back to the Bible. The Ten Commandments, it didn't take that long for them to become the 613 yeah. Commandments, right? Because yeah. right. we have the rules, and then we have the rules about the rules. Right. So I see what you're saying. So the other part I was going to add to that is that since every church has rules, one alternative is creating a book of discipline. Mm-hmm. The other alternative is not writing anything down. But then the situation that you have that Methodists have been trying to avoid by having a book of discipline is that the rules are just in the head of whoever is running the church, which means that they are, um, it's more difficult for any member to contest those because that means just basically confronting authority. Uh, So what Methodists have tried to avoid by having a book of discipline is a situation where you have someone who is the rule maker is in charge their word says their word is is law you've eradicated the threat of a cult of personality yeah, yeah. or that's our attempt and, and there are other ways in which we do that as methodists to try to maintain not i wouldn't say the autonomy of the local church but i would say the capacity of the local church to be its own it, it has decision some maker of its own governing identity. body yeah, yeah. Okay. huh what'd you say it that gives the local church a way to establish and maintain some sense of its own identity so you know Morningstar just to throw out another random Methodist connection Morningstar may do things a little differently than what's one I haven't named Long's United Methodist Church well, I have, you're here so I oh. kind of <laughs> named it in a way okay Morningstar may do it a little bit differently than Bethel United Methodist or even yeah. Myers Park in, in Charlotte right um and so there is their own identity, but it works within the same parameters. In other words, random Methodist church goer moves to a new new town and can kind of know what to expect. Yeah. Um, and that's what we don't have as Baptists. Yeah. I, I have a 
I want to take the conversation somewhere, and I want to start with Gordon, um, that we haven't gone, and I think in doing this, we're going to get to the question that gets us back to the Bible, uh, after I hear both of your sides, and we all hear it together. Gordon, if you don't mind sharing, where are you on this? And, and please describe... Uh, you know the different factors you're considering, and, and and it's okay if you haven't officially, I mean, completely made up your mind. In fact, I encourage people to not be rigid in making up their minds on the spot, because then there's room for shifting in opinions. <laughs> okay, this is kind of okay. Well, when I say where are you on this, I don't just mean the issue that's being discussed in the Methodist Church. I mean the fact that there is this discussion. The whole overarching issue where are you on it the whole of our you talking about this whole disaffiliation GMC oh. UMC oh, yeah. okay. how do you feel about it well it, it kind of how do I put this it's like I always like to point out to people if you look in the Bible and everything um, it's like uh, how do I put this you don't see the Satan going on for pages and pages and pages and pages he just has this just drops the right thought in the right place. It's almost like a diamond splitter. Just seems to know right where. And I can almost see like screw tape letters where he's sitting around the table with his minions and uh, uh, talking about like, uh, you know, the, how's it going out there? And the minions are like, oh, they're praying. They're doing this it's and that. Wormwood or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Screw tape and wormwood. But oh, This is a C.S. Lewis le- reference for anyone who's not familiar. But, yeah. But but I picture him sitting around the table and they're just, oh, gee, this I don't know. And he says, I'll split the whole denomination just like that. And we saw it with the Presbyterian and the Episcopalian and all that other stuff. And I was watching that when that was going down. And oh, I hope that doesn't come over here. But it did, you know. And so I think the Episcopalians were first, weren't they? Probably. I don't know which, which way. I just remember watching it go down. Um, and so that part of it's kind of makes me sad. But there is a part of it, and I'll be up front with you. Why well, have a book of rules if we're not going to follow? Mm-hmm. You know that that that's the thing. Like one of the issues that that I look at is like, um, for example, your church will, will hire you. Mm-hmm. They don't hire me, and so a lot of times for churches it, it can be kind of iffy. I mean, they do the best they can to match up and stuff. That's why sometimes, you know, people I get a little frustrated with the paperwork, but they need to try to do the best they can to match up congregations with pastors. And one of the issues that, that we're looking at is, like, well, what if you have a liberal pastor and these small churches around here are extremely conservative mm-hmm. or vice versa? Or how are you going to match off all of these these uh, situation? But um, uh, for me, I just I just I'm watching this and, and I don't know, I guess the, the, if you want to know the overall picture, it, it, it uh, I don't know if you're going to do it. Seems to me like if you were going to do it, they should have done it a while ago and pulled the, just ripped the Band-Aid off. Mm-hmm. Just call it out. Let's just say, okay, here's what we are. That's what you are. Because the bottom line is, as I've been watching this discussion, is I haven't really, the lines haven't really changed that much. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Neither side has really been, well, we're, we're seeing it on a, on a society-wide level almost, you know. Like nobody's changing anybody's minds. Mm-hmm. Not much. Mm-hmm. I don't see much of it. And... Uh, uh, and I was, I'll share this from you want to know like for me personally. So like when this thing first started coming down, they wanted us to have uh, 
these little tete-a-tetes at the churches. You what know? is a tete-a-tete? Head-to-head. You know? Okay, okay. Sit down. And, like and, a round table kind of thing. Yeah, and let's because the truth of the matter is, you know, Peter and I may be going to the same church for years, and I don't know where he stands at it. And then at, at this little round table thing, I find out he's got a gay son, and he's pro-whatever, and I didn't know this. So they kind of came down to me a little bit because I, they, I didn't do it. And they're like, why did you do it? I said, why kick a beehive? When I have no solution, mm-hmm. why stir the pot when I don't have a solution? I, you know, I would feel much better if I could come and say, "Everybody, this is how it's going to be. We can prepare ourselves for it." Rather than stir up debate and controversy with no solution, mm-hmm. only to turn around and go look at the upper ups and see that they're in the same turmoil. And I just don't see, I don't see that this has done us any good dragging this out for as long as we've dragged it out. Yeah. Well, I'll agree with uh, Gordon as regards to how to approach this with my churches. Um, You know, for reasons that we couldn't control, it's been dragged out even longer than we would have liked because the pandemic um, was the cause for canceling or postponing the 2020 General Conference where some of this stuff was going to be worked out. Exactly right. And so my, my... my approach with my churches has been uh, if people come to me and they ask me I will explain both what the current status is of conversations within the larger church and my personal opinion if they want to know it but I haven't had a round table I haven't had a let's all get here and we'll have a panel and y'all can ask questions and things like that because like Gordon said What's the solution? What do you do afterwards? What do you, you know, how do you point people in the direction that they should go? Now we have options because of 2019 for disaffiliation for congregations who feel that, that they have a majority of folks in their congregations who oppose um, removing this language against um, prohibiting same-sex weddings and, and uh, homosexuals being ordained. But, uh, but there is no official kind of re- revision or policy on this, and we won't see that until hopefully 2024. Hopefully. So one point of clarification about the article that was in the Mountaineer that I think is important to share with our listeners is that uh, the way the article was written, it sounds like all the Methodist churches have a March deadline to let let the annual conference March now of March of 2023 okay that's what it made it sound like it next made, month yeah like next month uh, yeah. like month and a half from now uh, about whether they want to disaffiliate or not so that is is and is not true but it's misleading because this is an annual deadline disaffiliations are voted for or against at annual conference and in the past couple of years we have voted Every time that a church that has applied or requested to disaffiliate, we have approved it. We have said, go with grace and peace and and let us be brothers, you know. But uh, that approval process happens at annual conference, which is in June. So the annual conference needs to know about it if it's going to go on the agenda by March. So it's not a deadline for, for now, once and for all, you have to have it your word in by March. So if you want to take another year to think it over, you can do that. Absolutely. The process will still be in place after this year's annual conference. 
and will likely continue to be in place uh, after the 2024 General Conference. There will probably be some modifications, there will be some debate, the discussion, there may be some larger proposal that comes forth. But my guess is that um, most annual conferences will continue to receive requests for disaffiliation because really, like, what are you going to do? I mean, if somebody really wants to leave, like, are you going to say, no, sorry, you have to stay and just make everyone mad? But, Peter, what's your perspective on this whole thing? Uh, Share as much or as little as you want. So, in my opinion, from what I have seen and from what I have heard, uh, I, I, I see that there are sort of two issues at play that oftentimes get collapsed into one. And we call it, like, the homosexuality issue. You know, whereas... Uh, in 1844, we called it the slavery issue, or in, in the Pentecostal church, for example, they're still debating the women issue, um, and other denominations that have an issue, right? And so in the Methodist church, depending on who you talk to, you'll actually get a different answer on what the issue is. So on, In the Baptist church, it was inerrancy, but go ahead. Inerrancy, okay, that's another one. So we have these issues that emerge and that people end up forming, you know, I'm on the Apollo side of this one or I'm on the Paul side, whatever. In the Methodist church, if you talk to folks who are on the conservative side, the issue is, as Gordon put it, um, violation of the book of discipline that is going unpunished or unacknowledged, unrecognized. It's being ignored. That's the issue. If you talk to folks who are on the progressive side of this of this conversation, that issue is secondary. The primary issue is that there are Bible-believing, uh, faithful Christians who happen to be gay or lesbian or transgender or bisexual who are feeling excluded from a church that they love. They're feeling that because that language is in the book of discipline, they are somehow considered less than any other Christian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, there are these roadblocks for those who feel called by God to preach or to proclaim that, that would love to stand in a pulpit and teach the good news. But because of their sexual orientation, they feel like that they are excluded from that. And so the, the issue on the progressive side is that we are um, artificially restricting God's calling. If someone has a call to ministry, whether we like that person or not, or whether we think that they are, um, up, live up to our standards for what holiness is, uh, we can either acknowledge that or we can try to keep them from it, but it doesn't change whether God called them or not. Mm -hmm. So that, those are the two sort of competing issues that are, that are kind of coming to a head here. And so I wanted to clarify that. Personally, I don't like disagreeing with God. And so if, if there's someone who I have seen the fruit of their ministry and they seem to be called by God to preach, to proclaim, to do works of service, to officiate the word and sacraments, um, it, and I see the fruit of their ministry and, and I listen to them, I believe that, that in their heart they love God and want to serve God, like, I don't want to get in the way of that. But, like, Gordon also has a point. If we have rules, we either need to change them or we need to follow them. Think about churches that have disaffiliated 
that that you know of and churches that haven't can they unite to work together and then make that bigger and look into the future if there's this huge schism in the Methodist church can the churches get past that to work together and looking back at the schism in the SBC that led to the SBC and the CBF they couldn't get along Hmm. I mean some churches try (laughs) I have friends that are pastors that and again this church is duly aligned but you often get people say hey you need to get all the way on this side and I'll work with you or you need to get all the way on this other side like the rest of us and we'll work with you and sadly there's just seems to be no room for disagreement Hmm. and I think that calls us back to what we are asked to do well appealed to us to do by Paul which is to not let these disagreements pull us apart so that there be no divisions among us so what is it that we can look towards or make our focus that allows these disagreements about which we just love to bicker to what 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 can we focus on that can make them peripheral issues hmm. or even non-issues at all hmm. and so I, this is this is beyond a methodist church question now because we live in a very polarized society Good not God. just denominations not just the church but very our societies brief. at large what can we as christians do to get past that because I'm, I'm sitting at a table with two methodists and i'd get along with both of you um and maybe the fact that I'm a Baptist and y'all are Methodist is what enables that. But see, you guys are both Methodists and y'all get along. So let's identify it. What is it that allows us to put our differences aside? That was not rhetorical. No, I know. But you, you, you kind of touched on it yesterday a little bit. But how do I explain this? Um, I had a less attention on who you are and what you're doing Mm -hmm. and more attention on who I am and what I'm doing. In other words, when I get to heaven and God's standing there and I say, well, yeah, but Peter, but Peter, he goes, I don't want to talk to you about Peter. Me and Peter are going to have our own conversation. What did you do? Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Well, what did you do to help Peter? What did you do to do this or that? My favorite thing is somebody will come over and like, oh, well, you know, what about all the poor people? And I always look at them, well, so which one have you fed? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you're blaming God for hungry people, and God's given you plenty of food. So if we can bring it down to the fact that I know that Peter's a child of God, and that I may not understand everything he's going with, but that's his issues, I don't need to worry about. Is he cold? Yes. Is he hungry? Let me take care of that, and so forth. Does he hurt? Does he suffer? Yes. And what, what can I do to make that happen? Because so many times in the church, you've got this stuff going on, and not realizing that that's a person over there. So basically, when we look at one another and examine one another, we see perceived flaws. But when our focus is on God and how can we best serve God, then God directs us to serve one another. Yeah, and let me add to what Gordon said with uh, with a story. So I went to Armenia in October, and the the project that we support in Armenia is supported by the Western and the and the North Carolina conferences of the United Methodist Church. And so I was traveling with some 
preachers from the eastern side of the state, one of whom is disaffiliating him, mm-hmm. him and his church. In fact, he is taking leadership in the in the global Methodist church mm-hmm. in the area of missions because that's what he's passionate about. And you know what? When it came to talking about missions and the work that we were doing in Armenia, we were in complete agreement. And so that was one one way for us to find ways to work together, even though we may disagree on other issues. So my doctoral work was based on that very notion that working together with people who are different from us, and I used age gaps, mm. but when, we, when, when our, our unified goal is serving alongside of one, well, forget that. When our unified goal is serving the church or serving God, reaching out in local missions, those differences tend to be diminished. Uh, and I don't know that they go away. I I, I did it by generations. Mm. And the concerns of the silent generation versus the concerns of millennials didn't go away. They were still our, our concerns that we carried with us through life. But the focus we had on those concerns was blurred for long enough to see past those differences and accomplish the goal. What was the goal? Serving our God together. And I think I think that that is something that is universal. It is, but you know, it breaks down in the details. You know, because uh, the people who uh, who are considered vulnerable, the people who are considered uh, hungry or naked or I- imprisoned, we 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 tend to spiritualize these to apply them to a range of issues and call that general group of people vulnerable. Well, mm-hmm. we differ about who exactly those people are, and. Um, and so, you know, I can I can imagine that with the with the mission trip in Armenia, we don't have anything to disagree about. But you know, if I was if I was uh, helping out with a uh, for 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 example uh, a ministry to uh, queer youth who are homeless, mm-hmm. for example, I might not get as much support um, from from some churches. We see this with the harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are those who just want to care about people mm-hmm. and do what the name says, reduce harm. Mm-hmm. And there are others that say, yeah. you're giving them clean needles? I mean, so uh, sometimes in, in the details, yeah. we find reasons to disagree. And frankly, that saddens me. I want to say something else that's a little bit more large scale when it comes to chronology, to time. Uh, there, there's obviously a, a split happening. There are already churches who have disaffiliated. The Global Methodist Conference is, or Global Methodist Church is sort of forming and becoming its own denomination. And I'm guessing that we'll, we'll see more of that happening. But the question that I'm asking is, how will we find a way to reunify later? Or is that a possibility? Is that a dream that we can both hope for? And uh, my personal response to that is, yes, I do hope that someday down the line we will be able to reunify. And, and I look to history of the Methodist Church, and I see several examples of that. For example, I think the one that's most fitting to me is the, is the 1844 split between the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Now, similarly, that was a time at history 
of history that was very divisive. It was right at the at the beginning of the Civil War. You can check me on that history buffs, but it was a situation where it became increasingly difficult for people to worship together, to meet together, to talk to, together if they had disagreements on some fundamental issues. And it resulted in a church split. But we know that that's not the end of the story because both Methodist Episcopal Church and Methodist Episcopal Church South became part of the United Methodist Church in 1968. So it took time and I would say it took a change of the overall temperature in society, you know, when things became less heated after the Civil War and people started living together and that, that whole conflict had resolved, uh, that there was an opportunity then for people to come back together. And, and I hope that we will also have that kind of opportunity because I, I don't really feel comfortable just saying goodbye, see you later, when, when I believe that when we work together, we have an opportunity to do really beautiful things that we couldn't do by ourselves. I've served two-point charges, and for non-Methodists, some churches can't afford a full-time pastor, so they'll share the pastor. So mm -hmm. two-point, three-point means I have, I am pastor at two churches. And I've served a couple of those kind of appointments. And whenever I have tried to merge these churches, and I mean, they're five miles apart. They know each other's grandpappies and every other darn thing. Try to get them together, mm. not going to happen. Mm. You know, it's just not going to, and it's just a really weird thing. But one of the things that when you mentioned about that period of time too, though, was that prior to the Civil War, we were the, the Methodist pastors were going down to the plantations and were preaching to the slaves and everything and saying, hey, in the eyes of God, and then when after the war, when they started showing up at church, it was like, oh, wait a minute, you got to sit up there. There's still some places in Florida where they still have the, what they would call the, the galley up there, where that's where they sat. They don't sit there now. Mm -hmm. Corinthians talks about that, too. And so the thing was, one guy came down one day and said to his pastor, exactly what you talked about earlier, I feel called to the ministry. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a step too far. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we're still struggling with as a Methodist church is the AME type issue yeah. and try remember we've tried several times to get that back in mm -hmm. and but then again we run into legalistic issues about appointments and bishops and so forth again right but we really haven't quite fixed that yet either but at least we're trying yeah there was a recognition of we need to make this separate but equal thing that we've had forever now stop like mm. jim crow well, Isn't that what that they was? were their own. Well, yeah, that's what separate but equal was, yeah. Jim Crow. But uh, the AME split happened. AME way, Zion Church. Yeah. yeah, AME and AME Zion churches yeah, split when, off from the Methodist Church. When he got told that he couldn't be a pastor. He said, "Well, fine, we'll go start our own thing." Yeah, and let's remember that um, it was bishops Fra uh, Francis Asbury and, and Bishop Coke who ordained the first uh, Baptists of the. Um, AME and AME Zion Church yeah, out sure. of an acknowledgement that look this division is here we don't like it we're not proud of it but we also want that the church that you are creating to flourish did you mean bishops bishops what did I say first Baptists of the AME Zion oh church. yeah yeah <laughs> sorry first bishops first bishops yeah. of the AME yeah. Zion and AME Church so uh, yeah I, I think 
you know, I believe that God's work in this world, that the healing work that God is doing in this world is, is a work of reconciliation. It is bringing people together. And so when I see examples of how we are doing the opposite of that, it causes me pain. It causes me grief. It causes me sadness. But it doesn't, it doesn't threaten my, my faith or my belief in that God and the God that God's power to bring us together ultimately. Well, I'll throw this in. My ex-wife was Catholic. <laughs> she converted to Catholicism, so for a while she was pretty fanatical about it. Now she doesn't go at all. But anyways, that's her life. But the the thing I wanted to throw in was that I constantly was running up against this stuff in the Catholic Church about well, well, you Protestants, you Protestants were the first schism. I'm like, no, mm. you were the first schism, and I said, and then you threw fire. Well, fire on everybody's calling yourself the universalist church <laughs> so so again there's an even bigger schism to heal i was actually uh in an unlikely debate with a um with a tire shop owner who's greek orthodox yesterday yeah. uh, who had heard about this issue going on in the methodist church and so we had a a really interesting conversation oh, yeah. actually about it well i am going to take all this and try to turn it into a tidy little challenge to our listeners. And that is <clears throat> to take the words of Paul in Corinthians and to find ways to either find or manufacture. And I don't mean it's fake, but, but to um, bring unity and harmony into our relationships, be that corporate relationships or personal relationships I think the world needs it and I think that um, no one else is as uniquely positioned to bring harmony into this world as the Christian church in the world because we have so many different groups in different places and we can be an example to the world how to put differences aside to focus on things that matter, like loving others and bringing healing to the world. Um, to at least find enclaves of unity that we can build on. This is something we can all do. And so I hope the church, not just the Methodist church, but the church, takes this opportunity to be an example in loving like our Savior loved us. And you can cut this part off. It doesn't matter to me, but there's too much other. There's too much other out there now. As in, you're over there, and I don't. And 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 with the internet and everything, too many silos, too mm. many separate camps. So too much defining myself by what I am not. But and yeah. not even knowing that person. Yeah. Okay, by their bumper sticker or what have you. So where I'm going with this is that what you kind of alluded to was getting to know each other personally. Mm-hmm. Because, for example, and I'll just do this really fast. You know, I, I had one church where the, the young people were complaining about the old people, this, that, and the other. And I said, you see that sweet little old lady over there that, that pulled up in the caddy, the whole classic nine yards thing? She flew B-25 bombers during World War II. 
because the male pilots had to fly in combat. They used women to fly B-52s from the factories over to England and stuff, unescorted sometimes. Oh, I didn't know that. I go, because you didn't talk to her. Mm-hmm. Then on the flip side, I, you know, the, the, I, had, uh, I did a little Sunday school class for some, and I had one of the ladies fill in for me, and she chewed me up one side down the other and said, wow, they were so rude, and they were up and down, and you give them too much sugar. There was donuts and, and this and that and everything, and they were just getting up and down. And I, I said, they, were, they came from an abusive situation. Their grandparents, God love them, took them in. They go from high school to middle school. I said, do you know what breakfast is like at their house? You think that lady's going to get up and make three separate breakfasts for three separate times? Mm-hmm. She puts it on the table. That's what they're used to. Oh, well, I didn't know that. I said, because you've never been to their house. You never sat down and talked to them. And one of the things that I think is really sad at church is I might be sitting in a pew, suffering, struggling, and the guy over there who I don't know very much about went through this. Mm-hmm. And he could help me. And it would help him to help me. Because we don't share that stuff. I know we try with the small groups or anything, but to get to know each other, it's really hard. For example, in AA and stuff, you know, I, I had very little uh, um, inter- interactions with, with gay and lesbian and all that stuff until I got in recovery. And you know what? Their pain and their sorrow and their suffering, and I was called as a recovering alcoholic to help them stay sober and everything. And uh, it really, you know, I got to know them as people instead of just yeah. this thing I see on TV or this blanket thing and so forth. It really is hard to judge if I if I'm if I get to know you yeah. and I know your, your what you're going through and what you're what what you're struggling with in life and and then participate in it with you. And speaking of knowing people personally, I feel like uh, one thing I need to uh, to add to this conversation is that the church that was highlighted in the article in the Mountaineer was Francis Cove United Methodist Church, mm-hmm. and we know personally Pastor Sharon, Sharon Davis. Yes, uh, she did my premarital counseling. She's an excellent pastor. She's good. And I also know Bill and Karen Yarborough who are leaders in that church and who who run the bear closet. Also exceptional, beautiful people that I respect as Christians. And I know that the the tension and the arguments and the um, discord is got to be really painful for everyone involved in that Mm -hmm. church and for any church that is going through this process. And so I just want to say that our heart goes out to those of you in that situation. Um, and to Sharon and to the Yarboroughs and to everyone who is coming face to face with this we want you to know that we love you and we're praying for you and with that for Pastor Potlog I'm Court Green and I'm Peter Constantian and we've been joined by Gordon Pike who we love dearly and um, just remember find reasons to love each other beyond your differences peace peace mm-hmm.